Um, and it's a joy to be with you all this morning. It's a joy to bring God's word to you. So let's turn in our Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 11. Oh, sorry, Luke chapter 12. In Hebrews 12, it says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And my friends, how true that is. This is the highlight of any service. Not because we have a visiting preacher, that's not that great. But it's the highlight of any service because we get to actually hear the word of the Lord. God himself speaks to us through his word in a, in a word that is effective, it is complete, it equips us for every good work. And right here in Luke chapter 12, we see Jesus preaching to the crowd and preaching to the disciples and no doubt preaching to us. And so we're going to read together from verse 35 to 48. This is the word of the Lord. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom his master will set over his household to give them the portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him in with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him will much be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. As you can see, it's a nice light text for us to examine this morning. <laughs> so let's pray and then let's get into this. Lord, I do thank you for your word. Lord, I pray for each of us here present this morning. Would my voice pale into the background? And would we hear your voice? Lord, would it be there as if we are there on the mountainside with you, hearing you speak to us, looking at us individually? Oh, Holy Spirit, would you do what only you can do? Would you open blind eyes? Would you change hearts? Would you help us all to run after you all the more? In your precious name. Amen. You know, whether we like it or not, life is just so much more fragile and finite than we care to think, isn't it? I remember some 11 years ago, I got a call from my friend Pete Greasley, who was my lead pastor in the UK before I planted in Australia. And he called me to say, hey, um, listen, I need to tell you about your friend Dan, who was one of my fellow pastors. He's just taken ill, 
And would you be praying for him? And we wanted to let you know. And I said, well, what's happened to him? And he said, well, he was working out in CrossFit and he collapsed and he's gone into a coma and they're trying to work out what's really going on. So I was like, oh my word, it was, it was upsetting. I'd known Dan for many, many years. And we began to pray for him. He was 33 years old. Two weeks later, he was dead. He'd had a brain aneurysm explode as he was working out. He left a wife and four young children. Just a couple of weeks ago, my friend Andrew Lung, who's my assistant in Australia, um, called me to say, hey, listen, brother, can you come and speak to one of my friend's kids? Because they want to get married. They'd love you to marry them. And they would like to do it as soon as possible. I said, well, why, why do they want to do it as soon as possible? This is two unbelievers. What, what, what's the rush? And he's like, well, he's just found out that he's got terminal cancer and he probably won't make the month. And suddenly you're sitting with this couple who are 20, 20 years old, really young, and they're facing trying to get married quick, but knowing that they're not going to be married for long because he's going to pass away. You then go home in Australia and you turn on the news. You're bombarded with news of pandemics and disasters and floods and wars. And you come face to face with the reality that life is so much more fragile and finite than we care to think, is it not? And the question that I think this text then asks of each and every one of us in the room is simply this. Are you ready? Are you ready to meet Jesus? Are you ready to stand and give an account for your life, knowing that he is King of kings and Lord of lords? Man is destined to die once and after that faces judgment, and you never know when he's coming back. Are you ready? Are you ready for Jesus' return? Because make no mistake, he is coming back. Arnold T. Wilson, the former president of the Evangelical Free Church of America, says this. He says, ever since the first days of the Christian church, evangelicals have been looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. They may have disagreed as to its timing and to the events of its eschatological calendar. They may have differed as to a pre-tribulation or post-tribulation rapture. Indeed, the pre or post or non-millennial coming... However, all agreed that the final solution to the problems of this world is in the hands of the King of Kings, who will someday return and make all things right. Kent Hughes continues. He says, This agreement regarding the sure return of Jesus Christ to judge the living and the dead comes from the overwhelming evidence of Scripture. There are 260 chapters of Scripture in the New Testament. And Christ's return is mentioned no less than 318 times. Statistically, therefore, one verse in 25 mentions the Lord's return and the reality that Jesus is coming back. You know, I think we can so easily forget that for a whole variety of different reasons. But my friends, Jesus is coming back. Jesus is returning and he will judge the living and the dead. And the question that he wants to ask us right here as he looks and gazes into our eyes is, are you ready? Because you never know when he's coming. Are you ready for that? Two points then this morning. Number one, our call to be ready. Verses 35 to 40. And then number two, the realities of our readiness. Verses 41 through 48. But really just one hope. 
And it's the hope that by God's grace, we would not only hear this message, but we would heed this message. And we would prepare our hearts to meet him. Because he is coming back. And we need to be ready. Two points then, and here's the first. Number one, our call to be ready. Look with me at verse 35 and 36. He says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. You know, to really understand, I think, what's happening there in that small picture, we have to understand that we are in the race of our lives. And I submit to you as Christians, I think we can really forget that. It's so easy to forget as Christians and as servants, as he calls us here, that we are indeed in a race. I know for us in Sydney, having been locked in for two years, that we are all carrying to a degree some COVID kilos, and I don't just mean weight. I mean, spiritually, everything's just kind of relaxed. And it's so easy to forget that I am called as a Christian to run hard for Jesus, knowing that he's coming back. In Hebrews 12 verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. It's such an incredible picture. It's one of the most often used metaphors in the Bible for the Christian life, whether it be 1 Corinthians 9 or Philippians 3 or 2 Timothy 4. You get this idea again and again that we are in a race. There's a great cloud of witnesses straining, looking on, all those that have gone before us, all the heroes of the faith, cheering us on and clapping us on, exhorting us to run hard, knowing that you get one shot at this and our time is shorter than we think and what a race this is. It's a race where you and I are called to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to love people and to care for people, to encourage people and to serve people and to proclaim the glories of the gospel to people, both locally and extra-locally around the world. This is an incredible race that we get to run. We are saved by His grace and we are now running for His glory. It is incredible in every way. And yet it is so easy to get forgetful and distracted away from this reality, is it not? See, I think our challenge in Australia and everything I know about the United States, I think your challenge is real similar. Our greatest challenge here, I believe, is not so much persecution from the world, but seduction by the world. <laughs> see, if we are talking about our brothers and sisters in Nepal, their greatest challenge is persecution from the world one of my friends there our, our lead pastor there he spends a good deal of his week trying to get his congregation out of jail that week because they've shared the gospel that week it's illegal to share the gospel in nepal you can't tell people about jesus you could do it in church but you can't go outside and then tell people about the lord in any shape or form so this pastor spends a good deal of his week getting his congregants out of jail so they can start to serve Jesus again. Persecution of the world is real. And yet in 2018, they baptized 200 people who gave their life to the Lord. They ain't stopping telling about people about Jesus just because they're persecuted. Persecution isn't mainly our challenge in first world countries. Seduction is our challenge. It's so easy to find ourselves being seduced into thinking that this world is our home, is it not? We live in this dot of time and we think this is all there is. 
Our world just shrinks to the time that we live, and so we relax and we eat and we drink and we be merry. We're lured into covetousness at the same time. This idea, if I can just get this, then I'll be truly satisfied. Yet in reality, it's a wild goose chase without a goose all the time. And yet we go after these things thinking, if I just get this, then I'm probably going to be real happy. And yet we never are really happy, so we look for something else and then something else. But constantly the world is lying to us. This is home. This is home. Eat and drink and be merry. And yet the Bible tells us that we're pilgrims and strangers and aliens on this earth. That you and I are citizens of a better country. That we're ambassadors to represent our true country, our true country being heaven. We're in the race of our lives, and yet we so easily get seduced into thinking, there is no race. This is just my home. I'm done. And at the same time, we get seduced into thinking that we're functionally immortal, I think. See, I've never met anybody anywhere in the world that actually thinks they're going to live forever here in this earth. But I've met hundreds of people that live as if they're probably going to do that, as if their life's just going to last forever. So they keep putting things off till next month or the month after that or next year or the year after that. Failing to recognize maybe you won't have next month or next year or the year after that. James chapter 4 verses 13 to 14 says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. What a humbling text, is it not? Who am I? Well, I'm a mist that vanishes. My kids will remember me. My grandkids will remember me. My great-grandkids probably won't have met me. My great-grandkids will have no idea who I am. We're a mist that's here for a little while and then vanishes. We can consistently be seduced into thinking, I think, that this world is home and I've got loads and loads of time to enjoy it. And we forget that actually as Christians, we are in a race. We are in the race of our lives. We get one shot at this. Our lives are far shorter than we often think. And the reality is Jesus is coming back and we never know when the race is finishing. And so... We need to be ready for his return. And what Jesus is helping us see here is we need to be ready for his turn like good and faithful servants. Look again. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. He's explained to us what he wants to find us doing when he returns. You see, the master in that picture is Jesus. He's at a wedding feast. A Hebrew wedding celebration isn't like ours that might last a few hours. These would last for days, sometimes over a week. They're a long, long time. And so when the master's at the house going to a wedding, you don't really know when he's going to come back. It'll just be sometime in the future. He could be there some while. But the servants we see here are alert and busy at home. They know what the master wants them to do, and so they're busy and they're getting on it. They are dressed and they are ready for action. You know, a Jewish tunic, it would look like nice, uh, but if you didn't strap the belt around it right, if you got to running, you'd just be falling over it all the time because they're actually too long. So you have, what he's talking about here is that being dressed for action is having that tunic tucked in your belt so that you can run and do what you need to do when you're called by the master. 
And this whole idea of lamps are always kept burning. The whole point is, listen, you don't want to be distracted in this race by a little slumber and a little bit of sleep. Let's not get seduced into just going slow for a season. No, no, keep those lamps burning. Let's get on it because we're in a race and we want to be alert and active and ready for his return. And what Jesus is helping them see in this moment is when I return, having been called by my grace and given gifts and abilities to serve me in this great race, that's how I want to find you. I want to find you alert and active and faithful servants, giving you all for this great kingdom of God. And it's beautiful because he's not just looking at them in this moment, is he? He's looking at us, all his disciples that would come after us as well. And there's this beautiful picture then in verse 37 and 38 where he talks to us about how the master will respond to these servants that he finds alert and, and active. Let's look at this, verse 37. He says, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. He's talking here about a picture of the master of the house coming back and as he's peering in through the window, he sees that his servants have the lights on, they have their tunics tucked in, they're getting on it. And what is clear is the master is so moved by the faithfulness that he sees inside the house that instead of just sitting down at the table, he now dresses himself to wait on them. It's exactly, the same word, it's exactly the same word in the Greek that he uses for when the servants are being dressed for action to serve him. There's this picture of now the master comes home, Jesus, and he's going to dress for action to serve us. It's such an incredible and beautiful picture. The same Jesus right here that just in a few chapters on will strap a towel around his waist and get down on his knees and wash the disciples' feet. The same Savior here that we will see in just a few chapters after that, being spread out on a cross, giving his life away as a ransom for many. What he's talking about here is the day that he will return. It's the great wedding feast of the Lamb, the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19, when people will be worshiping him from every tribe and language and nation, singing, worthy is the Lamb. And what he's saying is, while you're all busy doing that, singing, worthy is the Lamb, here's what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be getting down on my hands and knees to serve you. It's staggering. All we're going to want to do on that day is sing to him. And yet he's saying on that day when the master returns, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to be with you. It's so beautiful. And it's the great blessing that we see here for all those servants who are alert and active and are ready for his return. And no sooner has he painted that word picture for us, he then takes us right back to the point, though. Are you ready? Are you ready if I was to come back today? That's what he says in verse 39. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. He's talking there about how he will come like a thief in the night. You never know when he's going to come. And this is a theme you see throughout the New Testament. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 2 and 3, we read, For you yourselves are fully aware 
that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. 2 Peter 3 verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Revelation 16, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go out naked and be seen exposed. Do you get the picture? Jesus is saying, hey, listen, you're in the race of your life. I want you to be alert and ready as servants because you never know when I'm coming back. Because I'm going to come back like a thief in the night. Listen, if you're thinking as an individual or as a church, I very much doubt that he's going to be coming today. That probably puts it in the more likely bracket. Because therein lies the point. He's going to come when we're least expecting it, when we think it's surely not going to be now. That puts it more likely. You never know when he's going to come. Jesus' return will be swift. It will be unexpected, like a thief in the night. And so are you ready? Are you ready? If he was to come today, are you ready for that? Are you ready to stand before him and give an account for your life? You know, for many of us, I think we can hear things like this and we can be challenged and we can be provoked. And if we're honest, we may be aware, I don't think I am ready. Conversations that we've been putting off with the kids because we've been so busy at work that you think, I really do need to disciple those kids, but I've been so busy and I'm thinking I'm just going to do it next week or next month. What if you don't have next week or next month? Friends and family that we know we're called to tell people about Jesus. We're called to proclaim the gospel and yet we're struggling with fears to do it and we just think, I'm going to try and do it. I'm going to get my care group together and we're going to pray about it and hopefully I'll do it next year and I'll work towards it. What if you don't have a next year? What if they don't have a next year? What if you don't actually know Jesus yet and you've still got tons of questions about different things and you're still trying to work it out and so you're just trying to take your time but what if you don't have time? You know, maybe for some of us, you're aware, I I don't think I I am ready. Well, listen, in God's kindness, he has given you the gift of time. If you're here in this moment and you're looking at me and you're breathing, congratulations. You have the gift of time. And he's addressing you right here because he wants you to understand this. He wants you to understand you have time to change. You have time through a grace-motivated way to change for his glory and run, run this race hard for him. And yet we mustn't think that because we have the gift of time that there's no urgency in this. This whole text revolves around urgency. Don't keep putting this off. You don't know how much time you've got left that you keep putting off. But if you're here and you're breathing and looking at me, you do have the gift of time, albeit that there is urgency. And it's that urgency that he starts to point us to in the remainder from verse 41 to 48, which is my second point, the realities of our readiness. You see, there's no doubt that this teaching was electric and the disciples' minds are likely blown and coming off the scales at this point with this implications. I mean, they've just come out for a snack with Jesus, trying to hang out for a bit, and he's telling them all about this. There's no doubt that their minds are aware in this moment. And so Peter asks an obvious question that no doubt they are all thinking, verse 41, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? 
I love it. I, I'm looking forward to meeting Peter in heaven because he's going to be my type of guy. He's mischievous. He's in your face. Um, it's just he's one big amusement for me, to say the least. And the way he thinks and operates, he, this is what's going on in this moment. He's saying, Jesus, that is a, that is a profound teaching. So just to confirm, it's not really for me, it's for them, right? <laughs> You're addressing all of them in this moment. And here we have Jesus ghosting someone in the Bible. Does he give an answer? Negative. And he doesn't give an answer because I think his answer is implied all the way through. I'm speaking to everybody that's got ears to hear. I'm speaking to everyone present. If you have ears to hear, then I'm speaking to you. And he explains then the realities of our readiness can go two different ways. First up, we have then the faithful servant. The one who was alert and active and, and faithful to the Lord. Well, it would appear that they receive a gracious reward. And it's beautiful. We see it in verses 42 through to 44. This is what it says. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. It's wonderful. We have this picture then of Jesus returning to find an alert and active servant. This servant of Christ has been faithful in their temporary earthly responsibilities. And at Christ's return as a result, they receive vast permanent opportunities in the heavenly realm to come. It's astounding. Jesus points this out several different times in this same gospel. In Luke chapter 19, for example. Luke chapter 19, verses 15 to 17, we read, When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your meaner has, been ten, has, has made ten meaners more. And he said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority of ten cities. Now exactly what is he talking about here? If I'm faithful right here in the earth, will I get like ten cities and all that? It's all imagery. I'm not overly clear. But what I am clear about is it's a good thing and you're going to want it. Which is why it's here. He's saying when you are faithful to the Lord, what you'll receive is a vast, permanent, eternal reward. What he's indicating about there more than anything is the profound joy of hearing the Savior who died in your place welcome you in with the words, well done. Well done. You ran well. And you ran hard. And I'm proud of you. You were faithful with little. Now I'm going to give you more. Well done. Good and faithful servant. For all those who know Jesus as their Lord and Savior and then run hard for the Lord, the profound reward is well done. And what a moment that will be, don't you think? What a moment it would be to hear well done from Jesus, the one who knitted us together in our mother's womb, the one who died in our place, the one who saved us. For all those then who are found to be faithful servants, that's what they receive. They receive gracious reward and my friends I want you to know as a congregation that's why pastors serve so hard in what they do because for Eric and your pastoral team they're like Luther 
Just two days on their calendar. This day and that day. And that isn't just for themselves, they're thinking about you. Pastors are trying to equip you and help you this day in light of that day when you will stand before the king and give an account for your life. And it's my prayer and no doubt their prayer that for each and every member of this church that when you are presented to the Lord, you will receive his well done. And if you do, which I pray you do, you'll hear this Australian guy somewhere in the back Shouting the loudest, cheering you on. <laughs> Saying, well done. You did good. That's the gracious reward that is being offered to all faithful servants. But there is another reality of our not being ready. And he talks here then about the foolish servant. And what the foolish servant receives is righteous and just punishment. See, right up front then, there's their foolish servant who has been outright disobedient. We see them in verse 45 and 46. But if the servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. This is serious. Kent Hughes says this about this servant. He says, The servant here has not simply been lazy or inactive, but monstrously unfaithful. A drunken glutton who not only beats men, but women. An abuser of both divine trust and human life. His life is a grotesque perversion. For when the master Jesus returns, this cruel servant will suffer a grisly end. See, what is on view here through imagery is the realities of hell. And I don't know how you guys go in the States, but as soon as you mentioned hell in Australia, people are like, oh no, here we go again. Hell is real. It's a reality. This is what R.C. Sproul says about hell. He says, we have often heard statements such as war is hell, or I went through hell. These expressions are, of course, not taken literally, Rather, they reflect our tendency to use the word hell as a descriptive term for the most ghastly human experience possible. Yet no human experience in this world is actually comparable to hell. If we try to imagine the worst of all possible suffering in the here and now, we have still not yet stretched our imaginations to reach the dreadful reality of hell. But there is no biblical concept more grim or terror-invoking than the idea of hell. My friends, it's true. Biblically defined, hell is an eternity before the righteous, ever-burning wrath of God, a punishment from which there is no escape, no relief, and no end. Where our sinfulness and God's holiness collide, his wrath and hell is inevitable. And what is clear is for all those who are outright disobedient to the master, hell will be their consequence. And then he addresses the quietly disobedient. So not these guys that are just outright disobedient, but quietly disobedient. Maybe they'll get off, right? No. Look at verse 37 and 48. And that the servant who knew his master's will, who, who did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. 
Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Now, my friends, I'd want you to know in my estimation, we are swimming in the deep end of the theological pool in those two verses. Does this mean then that there's different levels of punishment somehow in hell? I don't know. I'm not sure. But what I am absolutely sure of is this punishment that it's talking about here is in the confines of hell. A place there is no escape, no escape from, no relief from, and no end. I read so many commentaries on those verses and they all differed to exactly what it meant, but everybody agreed it's talking about hell. And for all those who are outright disobedient or quietly disobedient, that will be their eternal home and punishment. But here's the thing. The one who's addressing us all along in this text is Jesus. And he's addressing us all along because what he's saying is, hey, I don't want you to go there. I came so that you might have life and that in abundance. I came so that that wouldn't be your story. I came so that you could be forgiven of your sin and redeemed by me and could be adopted into my family. You could know heaven would be your home. That's why I've come. Jesus in grace and mercy is getting ahead of the game and saying, I've come for you. That's why this text is here. And this text isn't just here for them. It's here for all of us as well. As a just in closing, how should we respond? For indeed, we read the Bible, but it's been reading us all the time. We hear about what Jesus said to them, but in reality, he's speaking exactly the same things to us. So how do we respond? Well, listen, just two things. First off, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you as you consider, am I ready? The answer is no. You are not ready. You do not want him to come back right now. And I want to encourage you then to get yourself ready by putting your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. In Romans 3 verse 23, we read, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's the case for every one of us in the room, me included without any shadow of a doubt. We've all sinned. We've all messed up before the Lord We've rejected the king, but we like the kingdom. I'm going to be entertained by the kingdom. I'm going to eat and drink and be merry in the kingdom. But I don't want the king unless something bad happens and then I'm going to slag him off. That's what sin really is all about. It's rejecting the king, but embracing the kingdom and then distorting it and doing whatever we want with it. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, we are in a collision course with the mighty day of wrath. And we're on a collision course with the realities of hell. But as Jesus himself told us, the one who is preaching this text right here, in John 3.16 we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Oh, my friends, what a happy discovery that is, is it not? You and I are on a collision course with the wrath of God and hell. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. His name is Jesus, the very man that's preaching to us right here in this text. 
And he gave his life away as a ransom for many, and he made it possible for all of us by putting our faith in him as our Lord and Savior to know that we're forgiven and redeemed and adopted, and heaven is our home. It's scandalous grace, but that is what the whole Bible and the whole gospel is all about. So I want to urge you, before you even leave today, get ready for his return by putting your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Repent of your sin. Repent of just having the kingdom with no king. Say, Lord, I want to take you as my king. And put your faith in him as your Savior, understanding he died not just for the world, he died for you. And in that moment, you will be saved. You will be ready to hear welcome home should he arrive today. And if you're here today and you are a believer, which is no doubt most of you, I want to encourage each of you to get yourself ready by being an alert and active and faithful servant. My friends, you and I are in the race of our lives and we get one shot at this. And we never know when the race is going to come to an end. You never know when your time is up. And you never know when Jesus might return. But I want to urge you as an individual and as a congregation, serve hard, run hard, live for the glory of God and live for his well done. As the missionary Jim Elliot once said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He's not just talking about money and possessions there. He's talking about the entirety of his life. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. I can't keep my life. I'm made for a person and a place. That person is Jesus and that place is heaven. I can't keep this stuff, but I'm going to give my life for the heavenly realms because I can't lose it there. Brothers and sisters, I want to urge you to run hard for Jesus. Maybe you hear that and you think, man, this sounds, this sounds hard. This sounds intense. No, it isn't. It isn't just that. It's impossible by yourself. But John 15 verse 5 says, For apart from me, you can do nothing. And it goes on to explain, that's why you have me. I will help you each and every step of the way. That's why we have the wonderful scene in Luke chapter 10 of Mary and Martha. Because what Jesus is helping us see is, if you want to run hard for me, then start sitting at my feet. Sit and serve. Sit and serve. Sit and serve. That's what this race looks like. That's what it looks like to be an alert an active and faithful servant. And I want to encourage you, do that. Run hard. And may you receive his well done. You know, life is so much more fragile and finite than we care to think. So get ready. Run hard. And run for his well done. Let's pray. Lord, it is a scandal that we get to be in this race at all. It is humbling, it is overwhelming, it is joy invoking to consider that you saved us by your grace, you called our name. And at the right time you gave your life away as a ransom for us so that we could be forgiven and redeemed and adopted into your family where we call you Father. And that heaven could be our home. Lord, did you forgive us for times where in reality we have just got distracted, seduced by the world, distracted from this race? Lord, I thank you that for each one of us in this moment, you've given us the gift of time. May we redeem it. 
May we run hard for you. And would well done be what we hear on that day. Help us, Lord, by your grace. And would it all be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.